Amen. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to the book of Colossians chapter number two. The book of Colossians chapter number two. Now, what we're going to be studying is the feast of the Lord. But in order to do that, we're going to begin in the New Testament. The New Testament gives us the light in order to interpret the Old Testament. They work hand in hand. They're not in opposition to one another, but they help you understand each other. So the book of Colossians chapter number two, Paul is dealing with a component um, that he often dealt with, and that was uh, Judaizers. These are people that would infiltrate the church and try to uh, manipulate believers in following law in order to either get saved or stay saved or something along those lines. That's what we call a Judaizer. So in combating that, the Apostle Paul's writing this in Colossians, and we're going to begin in verse number 16. So Colossians 2, verse number 16. He said, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. So what he's talking about here is that everything, every shadow of the Old Testament, these are the meat offerings, the drink offerings, the Sabbaths, the holy days, the new moons, all of it was what he calls a shadow. Now a shadow is not the real thing. If you were gardening and you saw a shadow next to you and, the, and you heard a voice talking, you wouldn't talk to the shadow. You would turn around and see who was causing the shadow. And what Paul is teaching the people of God in Colossians 2 is that all these things that you saw in the Old Testament, these holy days, any kind of offering, whether it be by meat or drink or grain or anything, even a lamb, any sacrifice, any offering, any holy thing was a shadow, and it was a shadow of one particular individual, Jesus. Amen. Everything in the Old Testament was to testify of who the Savior, the Messiah, is. Amen? And so as we look at the Feast of the Lord, we're starting here in Colossians chapter 2 because I want you to see that the things that we're looking at all point to Jesus. So as we look at these feasts of the Lord, we're going to look at how exactly they direct someone to Jesus. Because everything that we do as believers should point ourselves and others to Jesus. If we're doing something, but we're getting, we're, we're getting in the left field, it's because we've, we've lost centering on Christ. We've lost where our eyes are supposed to be. Whenever somebody gets off track, they get off track because they don't like the color of the carpet or they don't like this or they don't like it. But if we keep our eyes on Jesus, the pastor stays on target, the church folks stay on target, the deacons stay on target, the worship team stays on target, society stays on target, nations stay on target, right? As long as we keep Christ the preeminent, then the other things will work out. But it's when other things creep up into competition with Jesus that we begin to lose sight of what's most important. Amen? 
Well, hallelujah. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23 is where we're going to get introduced into the seven Levitical feasts. These are what most people call the feast of the Lord. If you've ever seen a menorah, uh, which is the, the candle that you'll often see in the windows of Jewish believers, you'll notice that there are seven candles. These seven candles represent the seven feasts of the Lord. You may or may not have known that. Now, the way that these feasts break down is that the first four are in one group, and then the last three are in the second group. So you, that's the way that it breaks down. Now, the feast of the Lord, as we said, is Leviticus chapter 23, and we're going to begin in verse number 5. So Levit Leviticus 23, verse... Well, let's start with verse number four. It says, These are the feast of the Lord, even holy convocations, which you shall proclaim in their seasons. So from here, we're going to go. Now, we're not going to go all the way through all of this, but from verses five through 44, you get a description of all seven of these feasts. The reason that these are important is because every season that Israel was in existence, it was called to hold these holy convocations. Why? Why? They were to celebrate as an anniversary what God had done for them or what God was doing for them. But in the same process, we see prophetic signs in every single one of these feasts. Every single one of these feasts carry the, the, the fragrance of Jesus. If you look, if you pray, and you ask the Lord to open your eyes as you read these in Leviticus 23, you go from 5 all the way through 44, what you'll see is you'll begin to see this picture of who Jesus is and what the plan of God is for the nations. Now, beginning in verse number 5, we have our first feast. This is the Passover. It says, in the 14th day of the first month at even is the Lord's Passover. This is one verse, first feast. What is it? Well, this is the one you remember from the book of Exodus. When God was bringing his children out of Egypt, and he was going to deliver them out of bondage, the requirement was place the blood of an innocent lamb over your doorpost. If you do, death will pass you by. Speaking and signifying as of today, when Christ's blood has been applied to your soul, death in its sting will pass you by. In the same significance, the angel of the Lord would pass over every house that had the blood of a lamb applied to it. Now, we see further significance. There's progressive revelation in this because, as you know, when Adam and Eve sinned, they, there was an animal that had to be sacrificed for them, right? Started out, one man, one lamb. Well, one of the things that God told the nation of Israel was, there's one lamb for every family. And if your neighbor can't provide for it, let them come into your house, right? 
Because we that's the way that the Lord set it up. One man, one lamb. Then it became one family, one lamb. And then an even more progressive revelation, because you'll see in, in a little while, you'll see how one lamb is for a nation. It's for a nation. And then you'll see there's a lamb for the world. Then you'll see there's a lamb for the world. Now, we, you know in the book of John, whenever John, uh, the apostle, uh, not the, John the Apostle, but John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus. You remember what he said? He said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who taketh away the sin of the world. So we have a progressive revelation of this Passover that's gone from Adam to here you seeing a family to soon that would be for the nation of Israel. And then as John the Baptist says, this Jesus, this is not for a man, this is not for a family, this is not for a nation, but he's here to take away the sin of the world. There's a reason why John the Baptist called him the Lamb of God. Why? Because he was the innocent sacrifice for our sins. He came to die that we may live. The Passover uh, speaks of this in, in greater detail. We also see later on, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus is our Passover. So, you know, in, in case you kind of get off track or you, you, you have some kind of issue there, let's, let's go look over there and keep your finger there. But let's go look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And what we'll do is we'll blend this into the next one. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to be looking at how Christ actually fulfills, even in greater detail, this feast. Beginning in verse number 5, 1 Corinthians 5, well, let's start with verse 6. He says, your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? As my mom used to say, one bad apple spoils the bunch, right? You, you can have a good group of kids, but you get one bad one in there, that bad one's going to influence them, right? A lot of times we like to think we'll have a positive influence on the other ones, but you got to be careful. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And this, how many of you know we can apply that in our own lives? We, we can apply that in our own lives, meaning, you know, you start giving the devil a little bit of foothold in your life, a little bit of leaven, it's going to end up leavening everything about you. It's going to end up weakening your prayer life. It's going to end up weakening how you study the word. It's going to end up weakening your church attendance. It's going to end up weakening your, your desire to witness and share your testimony. It's going to infiltrate every area of your life. A little leaven leavens the whole thing. Now notice what's next. Purge out therefore the old leaven that you may, what? Be a new lump as you are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Who's our Passover? See, that's why we don't have to, we don't have to do what the, what the law commanded Israel to do because Jesus is our Passover. We, we take Passover every day. Every day, 
you're alive, or you should be if you're born again. You're alive in Christ. If you're alive in Christ, you're celebrating Passover every day because the dominion and the power of sin over your life has been broken because of the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb breaks the dominion of sin off of you. There is no sin that can overcome you if the blood is applied to your soul. You are more, the Bible says, you are more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. And so we see here that Christ is our Passover. Now, Israel was commanded to keep Passover on the 14th day of the first month. This is significant. We'll get back into this timeline in just a second, but we want to look at this. This, the first day, the 14th day of the first month. What is that? What is that? One time a year. One time a year, they were called to apply this blood, to remember that in order for them to be cleansed, in order for them to be protected, it took the blood of an innocent lamb. And sometimes, sadly, some Christians go a long time without really meditating on that principle. But Christ is our Passover. Amen? Now, the next one was unleavened bread, which we haven't gotten into yet, but I want to touch on it because we're already here. The unleavened bread is the next feast. It, it actually falls the very next day. Now, Passover, how many of y'all know that the way that we see these things fulfilled is that Jesus fulfilled them on the very day that they transpired? In other words, Jesus died for our sins on Passover. He went to the cross, was nailed on the cross, shed his blood for our souls on the exact Passover date. The very next day is a high Sabbath. If you'll remember, back in, in the Gospels, whenever Jesus was dying on the cross, whenever he died, Nicodemus Nicodemus came and they wanted to take his body down. And Mary, they wanted to take his body down and they wanted to get him in a tomb quickly. Why? Because the Sabbath was coming. The, the sun was going down. At sundown, the Sabbath was starting. A lot of people think that that's because it was Friday. No, it's not. Because Passover, the very next day after Passover, is what we call a high Sabbath. When the Feast of Unleavened Bread starts on the 15th day of the first month, it's called a high Sabbath, okay? Now, this is important because Jesus fulfills the Feast of Unleavened Bread as well. Now, if we know the Bible describes leaven as sin, and this feast is called Unleavened Bread, then we can just kind of say, well, that makes sense because Jesus is sinless. Jesus had no leaven in him. Jesus had no leaven in him. When he went to the cross, there was nothing in him that anybody could say he did wrong. There was no sin in him. Not at all. Not even a little bit. He was the spotless, sinless, unleavened sacrifice for sin. Not only was he an innocent lamb, but he was also unleavened in the fact that he is the bread of life. Okay, look at this next verse, verse 8. He says, okay, for Christ, our Passover is sacrificed for us, verse 8, therefore, let us keep the feast, 
not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The, the feast that he's talking about is being honest, being real. When we have sin in our lives, getting it out, getting it out. If you look at these three verses, that's exactly what he's talking about. He's saying, look, there is, as Christians, there is no business that any Christian should have any kind of leaven in there because Christ is our Passover. He's been sacrificed for us, and we're supposed to basically live the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We're supposed to live it out. We're not keeping it with physical bread. We keep it with sincerity and truth. That means being sincere in your faith, not being pretentious, not having any false hypocrisy in you, but actually being who God called you to be, walking how God called you to walk, and doing it in the truth of the Scripture, right? So unleavened bread lasted for seven days. Now, one of the things that I want to show you while we're over here in the New Testament is Hebrews chapter 4. So turn, turn with me to Hebrews 4. I want to show you how Jesus had no sin. He was unleavened bread for us. One of the fascinating things about the Feast of Unleavened Bread is that after the Passover, one of the games that the parents would play with the kids is they would hide a little bit of leaven in the house and they would give the children a, a lamp and it was dark everywhere else they had just one lamp and they had to go throughout the house with this one light and they had to search and search and search for the leaven they couldn't stop till they found it okay and, and it shows in typology of how the Bible and the Holy Spirit is our light. And the Holy Spirit will illuminate leaven. The Holy Spirit will show us where sin is. If we follow his light and we follow his leading and we follow his directing, the Holy Spirit will, will zero in on that piece of leaven. And what they would do is they would then take that leaven and take it out of the house. That night, that night, there could be no leaven in the home. It's part of the deal. It's unleavened bread. There could be no, and that represented in how in our lives there's supposed to be no sin. No sin. But Jesus is our unleavened bread. Now let's look at, I just want to show you this in Hebrews chapter 4 that he had no sin. Verse number 15. Well, let's look at 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin so the bible boldly emphatically declares right here jesus had no sin none so when he's on the cross there's nothing nothing that death hell the grave or the devil could lay claim on there's no condemnation in him that's why when we're in christ there's no condemnation on us 
because he was unleavened. He was without sin. And, and you see that just emphatically clear right there. He was without sin. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah for that. Hallelujah for that. So it's, it's, it's very neat because the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was supposed to be kept for seven days. For seven days. It began with what's called a high Sabbath and it ended with a high Sabbath. What does that mean? Well, if you remember, the, the Feast of Passover begins on the 14th day. It could be any day of the week. But whenever it's the 14th day, that's Passover. The next day is what we call the high Sabbath. That's the kickoff of unleavened bread. And then for seven whole days, that feast goes on. Okay? So let's, let's move back over to the book of Leviticus. I hope that you kept your finger there. Back in Leviticus chapter 23. Notice here in verse number six, it says on the 15th day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread unto the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. What was significant about unleavened bread as an anniversary? Whenever God delivered Israel out of bondage, he told them to take unleavened bread, right? Do you remember that? Why? It was to show them they were leaving that night. They didn't have time to wait on the bread to rise. It wasn't going to spoil on the trip. They were bringing something that would not only have some, some life to preserve in it, because it was unleavened, but also it was something they could make quick and take with them. You see, they had been in, they had been in Egypt for years, generations. It's kind of like now, people have for generations heard Jesus coming back. You, start, you hear some kids, they'll be like, yeah, 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 I know. Sure, sure, I know. And in the same way, these Israelites had heard for generations, one day the Lord's going to bring us out of here. One day the Lord's going to deliver us out of here. And you could probably hear some of them say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure. We're just, this is just how it's going to be. And then all of a sudden, the Lord said, put blood over the doorpost and make some unleavened bread because tomorrow you're rolling out. You're rolling out. They, they took the unleavened bread because they didn't have time for it to rise. He was, God was telling them, on my word right now, you're going to be out of here tomorrow. And they were. And for seven days, they ate on it. And so it's an anniversary and a remembrance of God's deliverance. And how many of you know, when God delivers somebody, he delivers them. You don't have to take 12 steps. You don't have to do 15-year programs. You don't have to do all kinds of stuff. If you come to the Lord and you get on your knees and the blood gets applied, you can be set free of anything in a moment of time. In a moment of time. That's how... That's how swiftly and how powerfully God brought the whole nation out. And it represents how God releases his children from the dominion of the devil. He will release you from every demonic empowerment over you, whether it's drugs or alcohol or lust or anger or envy or any kind of addiction, whatever it could possibly be. It does not matter because God is our deliverer <laughs> he is our deliverer and when he delivers he doesn't do it in part 
He doesn't do it in part. He delivers completely, swiftly, and with finality. And with finality. It's amazing because whenever God brought the nation of Israel out, one of the things that he, that he did is he had them look back and they saw the enemy following them all the way up to the river. And then God brought them across the river and they got to see the enemy drown. And if you, if you will listen to the Holy Spirit, when God brings you out of a circumstance or God brings you out of an addiction or God gives you release from something that has held dominion over you, if you'll listen, the Holy Spirit will let you see it drown in the river behind you. God will give you such victory over it. God not only delivers you, but he restores you. He restores you. Amen? I heard one, one guy talk about it. He... he had a, a a thing with pornography and it was just sickening just sickening but not only did God break it off of him but God gave him a heart God gave him a heart to have innocence restored to the church his heart was to protect and preserve the purity of women so he went from one end of the spectrum to the total other end of the spectrum. That's how God, he not only delivers, but he completely restores. In other words, if you're an alcoholic, God won't stop at Odul's. If you don't know what that is, that's non-alcoholic beer. If you're an alcoholic, God won't stop at that. He'll take you all the way. Amen? He'll take you all the way. Hallelujah for that. So unleavened bread is very powerful. It's very significant. And, and just so you remember, um, you don't have to turn there, but in John chapter 6, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. He talked about that. How beautiful is that? Amen. So what's the next one, Pastor? Okay, so the first one is Passover. That's the, if, if you look on a menorah, you have the candles. The first one's Passover. The second one is unleavened bread. What's the next one? The next one, honestly, it's, it's one of my favorites. I mean, they're all my favorites, but this one's one of my favorites. The next one is first fruits. You know, first fruits is beautiful. It's the third feast. Now, let's look at this one. In first fruits, is, you're going to find that one in verse number 10. He says, speak unto the children of Israel, saying to them, when you be in the land which I give unto you and shall reap the harvest thereof, then shall you bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest unto the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you on the morrow after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Now, some of you, some some people get a little bit hung up on some of these things. Let me ask you a question. What is the morrow after the Sabbath? I understand that's King James. What is the next day after the Sabbath? Sunday. Sunday. The, the, whenever somebody wants to know why y'all have church on Sunday, because Jesus is the first fruits. Jesus is the first one raised from the dead. He rose from the dead on the third day. On Sunday morning, he, he fulfilled in typology, in prophetic fulfillment to the T, the exact day of the feast of first fruits. The Bible says Jesus is our first fruits and first fruits happen on the morrow after the Sabbath. 
the morrow after the Sabbath. So any, anytime somebody has an issue with Saturday, Sunday, you take them to first fruits. Jesus rose from the dead on first fruits. He fulfilled that feast, and that feast took place on a Sunday. Okay, so here's the thing about it. The feast of first fruits on the morrow, it was this. The day after the, the first Sunday after Passover, that's when it happened. The first Sunday after Passover. So whenever you see on the prophetic calendar, you would see Passover, and then the very next Sunday is the Feast of First Fruits. Every single year that Israel has kept feast, that's the way it played out. So anytime you see Passover on the calendar, the following Sunday is going to be first fruits. So when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, we know that he died on Passover, and we know three days later he rose from the dead, and we know the Bible says that in, in Mark 16 verse 9, early on the first day of the week he had rose from the dead. Early on the first day of the week. That tells us that he rose exactly on first fruits. Hallelujah for that. Now, let's, let's look at that one. I got to show you this one in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So keep your place. Go with me to 1 Corinthians 15. Got to show you this one. Verse 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 20. It says, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, listen to this, Christ the firstfruits, afterward, they that are Christ's at his coming. So this tells us right here, you don't even have to know anything else about eschatology. You don't have to know anything else about end times. You don't have to know anything else about the book of Revelation. You know, because of what you read right there, that if Jesus rose from the dead, he's the firstfruit unto God. And if he rose from the dead, that means all those that belong to him are also likewise one day going to be raised from the dead. Hallelujah. Glory to God Almighty. This tells us right here that Christ is the first fruit. In order for man to be raised from the dead, a perfect man had to die sinlessly. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And when he rose from the dead, and don't ever forget, he rose, he said in John chapter 2 that he was going to raise himself up. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. And just so there's no question, the Bible says, this spake he of his body. This is John chapter 2. Hallelujah. Isn't God good? You know what this tells us? This tells us that if God was faithful to see the first fruits come in, we can trust the rest are going to come in too. Don't, I mean, do you see that? 
God was faithful enough to see the first man raised from the dead. He was faithful to see the first fruits. If the first fruits come, look, here's the thing. Whenever the first fruits were required to be presented to God as an offering, how many of you know the first tomato that you get off your plant? You're not really too sure that all the rest of them are going to come in, right? You don't really want to share your first tomato with everybody because you're not too sure if you're going to have any. But it speaks of a step of faith. I'm going to take this first one because I know and trust God's going to bring the rest of them. And in the springtime, at this time, that was when the first barley harvest was happening. And this is a harvest that they all needed. But it was a step of faith in order to say, look, Lord, you brought the first one out of the ground. Don't you know that the barley grew out of the ground? Don't you know Jesus came out of the ground on the third day? They said, they, they said look, Lord, you, you brought this first harvest out of the ground, and, and, and we're just going to trust in that and believe in that, that you're going to bring the rest of it out of the ground at its proper time. And in the same way, when we look at death, we can look to that empty tomb in Jerusalem, and we can say, you know what, the Lord... The Lord did that. The Lord did that. That tomb is empty. And because that tomb is empty, I know that everyone else that dies in Christ is going to come out of their tomb as well. Glory to God. Glory to God. Now, here's, here's something interesting, too, just as a caveat in this verse. It says in verse 22, I just want to touch on this because the pastor in me. He says, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. This is something important you need to see. Sometimes people will take that verse and they'll say, well, that means universalism. Everybody is going to be raised. Everybody's going to go to heaven. Everybody, everybody. No, no. How do you get in Adam? You're born physically. How do you get in Christ? Born spiritually. Problem solved. That's how you understand that verse. Everybody's in Adam physically, but not everybody's in Christ. Hello? Not everybody's born again. Narrow road. Narrow road. Few find it. Wide is the path to destruction. Many go therein. But unless a man be born again, unless a man believe on Jesus Christ, he won't be in Christ. Okay? So all those that are in Christ will be raised from the dead. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. It, not one will be left behind. Not one person born physically on this earth got to escape the edemic thing. Not one. Everybody I know gets headaches. I don't know anybody that don't get them. I don't know anybody that don't need glasses. I don't know anybody that don't need to go to the doctor some point in time. Except Jesus. Hey, Amen. In the same way, everybody that's born of the flesh has to die. In the same way, everybody born of the Spirit won't be in the ground forever. Must, the ground must let them go. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, the next one's Pentecost. So the, the first one is Passover, the second one is unleavened bread, the third one is first fruit. That's hey, hallelujah. I'm standing in, in complete confidence on that one. Amen. That's the resurrection. 
The fourth one, the fourth one is beautiful, Pentecost. Pentecost happens 50 days, 50 days after first fruits. How do we come up with that word Pentecost? It means 50. <laughs> it's real easy. That's what the word means. They counted 50 days. They actually counted from that day 50 days, and that's when Pentecost came. Whenever the Holy Spirit came in the book of Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost, it was 50 days after the resurrection. Exactly 50 days later. Pentecost is a beautiful thing. Um, let's, let me show you something in Acts since we're in the New Testament. Let's go look at Acts chapter 2. We'll see this. Acts chapter 2. So this fourth feast is what we will call the last of the spring feasts. This fourth one is the last of the spring feast. Pentecost is 50 days after first fruits. Here we go. Acts chapter 2 verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting, and there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as fire, and it set upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah. This is when the life comes into the church. Yes. Amen. This is when the shout comes in. <laughs> this is when somebody gets their voice. Hallelujah. This is where the life comes in. But look, look, it happened exactly on the day of Pentecost. When you look at the feasts, when you look at the seven Levitical feasts, understand each one of them happened on the exact day. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost. Every single one of them happened on the exact day. Let me show you something interesting about this. Now, a lot of people don't know this, but what the, the day of Pentecost in the Old Testament was a celebration of a particular event. Do you remember what it was? 50 days after the first first fruits, what was it? This was the day that Moses went up to Mount Sinai and got the Ten Commandments. This is whenever Moses got the law. Pentecost was the giving of the law. In the New Testament, Pentecost is the giving of the Holy Ghost. Amen? Look, in order for Israel to fulfill their destiny, in order for them to be who they were supposed to be, a separated people, in order for them to be God's people, they had to go through the law. The giving of the law was to establish them as who they were supposed to be. And in the same manner as New Testament Christians, the Holy Ghost establishes you for who God has called you to be. The same way. And, 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 and in case you need a little bit of, you know, a, a, a little bit of something on that. How many souls were added to the church that day? 3,000, that's exactly right. If you look at verse 46, it says that there were 3,000. Now, what's interesting about that? What's interesting about the 3,000 number, guys? Here's what it is. 3,000 souls were added to the church that day, the day of Pentecost. Do you remember what happened whenever 
Moses brought the law down from Mount Sinai. You remember that he had a little bit of an issue with the Israelites? They made a little bit of a golden calf. And Moses threw a little bit of a fit. And a little bit of number of Israelites died that day. You happen to wonder how many? 3,000. 3,000 Israelites died on the day that the law was given, and 3,000 Jews were saved on the day the Holy Ghost was given, on the exact day. That shows you that God's hand is in it, and it also shows you that the New Testament is greater, that the New Testament is the light that we're called to walk in. We're not supposed to go back into the death part. We're supposed to walk in the life part. Now, where that passage is, if you want to write it down, it's in, um, it is in, I'm sorry, it's Acts 2.41 is where you'll see the 3,000 added to the church. For the Old Testament, it's Exodus 32.28. Exodus 32.28, that's where we see this noted, that there were 3,000 souls that died that day. How amazing. The exact day. The exact day of Pentecost, Old Testament to New Testament. Negative 3,000? Positive 3,000. Hallelujah. I'll take the positive every day. <laughs> now, what we see here, that's the, fir that, the first four. The, these are all what we call the spring feast. Now, where we are as believers es in, in eschatological terms, we have seen all four of the spring feasts fulfilled in the first advent of Jesus. How many of you know he, he is in heaven right now at the right hand of the Father? Amen. How many of you know he's coming back? Amen. We call that the second coming. Makes sense, right? We're not rocket scientists. It's first coming, second coming. I can go with that. First coming, he fulfilled the first four in the spring. There was a delay. How many of you know between spring and fall, there's something called summer? Sometimes when you live in Louisiana, summer seems like it's forever. And sometimes we, when we look at the way that these things are prophetically fulfilled, we can say, it just seems like forever. When is Jesus coming back? Amen. Amen. But what we see is that the three remaining feasts are all fulfilled in one month of time. It goes swift. When this part happens, it goes quickly. It, the Lord doesn't play around with the fall. It goes fast. And, and what's significant about it is there's a transition between the spring and the fall. You have this time period called summer, what we call es in eschatology, we call it the church age or the age of grace. This is the, the intermediate time when the Lord is in heaven and he's waiting to return. Now, there's something significant about these three remaining feasts. The first one is what we call the Feast of Trumpets. The Feast of Trumpets. This, it, it, um, you might hear somebody that is Jewish, they might call it Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah. This is actually coming up soon in, on our calendar in this month, month of September. What's interesting about this feast is that it happens on the first day of the month, on the first day of the seventh month. Now, that doesn't mean a lot to us because we just turn a calendar, it has a one on it. But if we were Jewish, it's not that simple. The Jewish calendar 
kind of fluctuated. The new month never started until the new moon was visible to the eye. In other words, they really didn't know the exact day or the exact hour the new month would start. They had an idea. They could tell once, once the moon was completely gone. You look up in the sky, you don't see a moon that night, and you say, okay, it's getting close. There should be a new moon appearing. A fragment of a moon should appear tonight or tomorrow night, somewhere in there. So we don't know the exact day or hour, but we can kind of tell the week. We can kind of tell the season. We can kind of tell the season that it is, but we don't know the exact day or hour. What's interesting about this feast is that it's the only one that was like that. Every other feast happened on a particular day of the month after the month had already started. This is the only feast that happened on the first day of its month. First day, seventh month. Which correlates right about to September on our calendar. So what would happen? They would have people out in the night and they would be looking for the moon. If the moon didn't appear, they didn't do anything. But if the moon appeared, they would blow the trumpets. They would blow the trumpets. Suddenly and out of nowhere, the trumpet would sound. All throughout Israel, trumpets would be blowing. In the moment of time when people heard the trumpets call, they knew the month of regathering has arrived. When When you get to the fall feast, it's all about one thing, regathering the nation. You've been out in the fields working, hello, churches, highways and hedges. You've been out in the highways and hedges. You've been out in in the wheat field. You've been out in the barley field. You've been out doing what I've called you to do. Now it's time to bring it all back in. When the, when the trumpet sounds, they don't know the day or the hour, but when they hear it, they know now starts the regathering. This is when we bring everything back in to Jerusalem, when we are gathered back unto the Lord, and we, 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 we begin to make our journey home. We begin to make our journey home. Now this, now this correlates exactly to the rapture. This correlates exactly to the trumpet. Now, I understand that some people are, you know, some people have post-trib, pre-trib, all this kind of stuff. But it correlates exactly to the rapture because the rapture happens in a moment of time and nobody knows when. Nobody knows when. Jesus actually said in Matthew 24, 36, that no man knew the day or the hour that he was coming back. He said, no man knows the day or the hour. To us, it makes us be like, well, why don't anybody know? But to the Jewish person, they knew exactly what he meant. When he said, no man knows the day or the hour, there is one particular day that that's important to know. That is the Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah. It is a known fact at Rosh Hashanah that nobody knows the day or the hour, but when the trumpet blows, you know it's time to get gathered up. And in the same way, when the trumpet blows, the Lord's going to gather his children. He's going to gather his children. Now, here's something that's interesting about this that I read from a Jewish scholar. There is a, a wedding custom, a Jewish wedding custom. When a husband was betrothed to a wife before they were married, 
the, the guy would go and make a bedchamber for her. He would, do you know that Jesus went to make a mansion for you? He, did he not say in John 14 that he was going to prepare a place for you? This Jewish custom was that the guy goes to prepare a bedchamber for his soon-to-be consummated wife. But after he's done, he is to honor his father. How does he honor his father? He says, Father, I'm done. The room is ready. And he cannot go until the father says to go. He doesn't know the day or the hour that the father's going to say, okay. But in a way to honor his father, before he becomes a man of his own, before he has his own family, he honors his father this one last time. And he says, I'm ready, it's ready, she's ready, but you tell me when. He gives that honor to the father. And you see the significance now when he says, no man knows the day or the hour but the father. But the father, he gives that right to the father in order to, to, to say when to go, right? How many of you remember a story that Jesus told about the, the, the wise and the foolish virgins? Remember that? Here's what's interesting, another, uh, another part of this Jewish custom is that the guy, once the, father, once the father had thought about it, and you could kind of, you know, imagine yourself in that position, you'd be like, okay, I'm going to give him a couple days. Okay, now go, right? Here's the other part of the tradition. The guy would not go into the home where the girl was. What would he do? He would stop outside of the home and call her out. And in the same way, when Jesus comes at the rapture, this is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I'm about to show you. When he comes for the rapture, he doesn't come to the earth. He stops at the clouds and he calls the children up. The dead in Christ rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them, so shall we ever be with the Lord. This truth parallels exactly with this same custom. Jesus doesn't, he only comes to the earth a second time once. Don't forget that. And, and there is a passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you'll turn over there, I'll show you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. There is a verse of scripture right here that you cannot get around. It is not the second coming. So whether you are pre-trib, post-trib, you don't know trib, all this kind of stuff, if you get sidetracked into all that, this is something you have to square. There's an event that takes place where Jesus stops in the clouds. He doesn't come to the earth, and he calls the dead in Christ and those that are alive up. This parallels perfectly with Rosh Hashanah. So 1 Thessalonians 4 Verse number 15. Oh, let's look at 14. If, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. Now here you go, listen. 
the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, listen, to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Now, do you see he does not come to the earth? We meet the Lord in the air. In the same way, in this consummating of a marriage, the husband calls the bride up. Calls the bride up. He doesn't actually come in, right? So here's the, the, the first feast of the fall is the Feast of Trumpets or Rosh Hashanah, which starts in an hour that no man knows. In a day that no man knows, save the Father. And on that day, the nation of Israel had basically one thing in mind. Regather, gather, come back home, get ready. The fall feast all come to this one point, which is the sixth feast. That is the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement is the sixth feast. What's important about this day? Oh, I don't know. This is the only day of the year that the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. It's a little bit important. This is the day that sin was dealt with. This was the only day that the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and apply blood to the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. This one day of the year is when the sin of Israel was paid for. So from Rosh Hashanah, Feast of Trumpets, all the way to this day, which is the 10th day, what they would do is they would repent, they would repent, they would repent, they would get their hearts right, they would be contrite and broken before the Lord, they would confess their sin, and then on this day of atonement, the blood would be applied for their sin. And it would go from one year to the next. How many of you know that in the New Testament, Jesus was sacrificed once for all? There is no more need for the yearly sacrifice. There is no more need. Jesus, by his own flesh and blood, he went all the way into the Holy of Holies and applied the blood of the spotless lamb once for all. Once for all. Hallelujah. What's interesting about this that I found too, if you'll remember just a little bit of eschatology, in Daniel chapter 9, we have the most significant event, I believe, in prophecy. Daniel chapter 9. This is the judgment that God gave to Israel. He said he's judging them for 70 weeks. He said, after 70 weeks, we're going to make an end of the transgression and an end of sin. So when this judgment is done, there's not going to be any more transgression. There's not going to be any more sin. Everything's going to be dealt with, and it all sums up on this last day of atonement. So what's, what's amazing here, like I said earlier, is that Jesus, Jesus is that last sacrifice. Amen. The day, the day of atonement is whenever there would be um, the, the, the blood applied for sin. In the New Testament, though, Jesus' blood once for all. Hallelujah. How many of you know, though, that on the day of atonement, this actually represents the second coming? 
Because in prophetic terms, in prophetic terms, the last bit of judgment that was prophesied to Israel cannot end until the second coming, until Jesus comes back to the temple to establish his earthly reign. Once that happens, it's over. Amen? Once that happens, it's over. Now, the last one is the Feast of Tabernacles. This is the seventh and the last feast. Tabernacles is great because you can kind of get by the name where it's going. In Tabernacles, whenever God commanded Israel to keep this feast, they were to bring a booth or a tent, and they were commanded to go to Jerusalem and keep this feast. What it showed was that one day they would be living in God's city and they would be dwelling or tabernacling in God's city. New Testament, a little bit different. In the New Testament, once the final day of atonement is cleared out and God begins to judge the nations for rejecting Jesus Christ and all of that is settled, now transgression is out of the way, now sin is out of the way, people are dealt with, now what happens? God is going to bring the new heaven. God is going to bring the new city of Jerusalem down and God is going to tabernacle with his people. God is going to tabernacle with his people. Let me show you that in the book of Revelation. Revelation 21. Revelation 21. The Feast of Tabernacles is, is amazing because it testifies of this exact truth. Revelation 21, verse number 2. And I... John saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. And that's when God wipes away all the tears from their eyes. Be no more dead, no, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things are passed away. When God tabernacles with his people, this is the ultimate and the greatest blessing God could ever give us. It's not money, it's not finances, it's himself. Amen. He will tabernacle on earth in the new Jerusalem himself with his people. He said, I will dwell with them. I will be with them. And I'll be their God. And it says, he will wipe away tears. Can you imagine the nail-scarred hand wiping away tears from your eyes? How beautiful, how awesome, and what a promise that will be. 